Thank you, Tasha. Ooh, that's loud. <laughs> Could use one of these at home. I'm yelling at the children, right? When I'm yelling at them to stop yelling. That's my favorite. Um, please join me in just another brief prayer. We can have ever enough prayer unceasing. Lord, thank you so much for everyone gathered here. Thank you for the privilege of being able to be here together. Thank you for the circle of grace in each of our lives and among all of us in you, Lord Jesus. Bless our time here together, we pray. We thank you and honor you and give all glory to you. In your name, amen. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's a beautiful, beautiful sunny day after a long, long winter. Aslan is on the move, finally, up north. <laughs> it is such a delight to be with all of you because I just don't even know where to begin. <laughs> it's just so exciting to be here because I uh, grew up in London, Ontario uh, without a faith, really kind of, I guess I would define myself as loosely Catholic in terms of a European Catholic background, went to church for Christmas and Easter sort of thing, um, largely went to a Hungarian church, which did mass in Latin. So when you're three, four, five years old, it's not always very helpful. <laughs> and, um, and I grew up, uh, how I would define my family, like many other families, probably broken enough, um, I would say loving enough to get by, broken enough not to deserve God's attention. That's how I would have thought. Um, my uh, parents were um, self-made. My father was a self-made businessman, and uh, we were fairly affluent when I was little. And then he lost all of that when his business crashed and um, went through a, a nervous breakdown as a result of that and other related things and into a series of mental illness um, episodes as well and um, was in and out of our lives. And sometimes when he came back into my life, he was quite violent or difficult or unpredictable. And my mother was raising my brother and sister and myself uh, as a single mom, um, very loving, but also um, working long hours and just trying to survive and often drinking into the evenings to swallow back her pain. Uh, all the ways that we try to dull the pain in our lives uh, when we don't look to Christ first for all of us. And so I would have defined my childhood overall as, as very happy in many ways. I mean, I, I really enjoyed my childhood, but um, like many of us, a divorced home or a broken home or um, all the other things that we all struggle with as well. And uh, but also very much a sense of self-sufficiency, very much a sense that I was going to make my own way and uh, that fathers could not be dependable um, and certainly not an eternal father. I wouldn't have defined myself by high school as atheist because you couldn't disprove God, so I would have defined myself as agnostic, uh, but certainly not going to trust an eternal father. Uh, I was working several jobs by the time I was in high school to help support my family and to, and to get prepared for um, university. We all know what that's like, especially in North American culture, to often be working a lot while we're also trying to do our studies. And uh, I ended up um, studying at the University of Western Ontario for my undergraduate in English literature while I was working many jobs. And, uh, I ended up winning a scholarship to Oxford University. I wasn't actually anticipating that. <laughs> I had a, um, a professor, you've got to watch those professors, they're very sneaky, especially the ones that love the Lord. And, uh, and so um, 
he uh, had done this application on my behalf, and uh, you would have thought that I would have been absolutely delighted. And of course, part of me was, because talk about one of the most beautiful places in the world to study literature, right? Oxford University, home of C.S. Lewis and Inklings and all that sort of thing. Just being there makes you feel smarter. <laughs> you can feel the history in the walls and um, the smell of books. Oh, is there anything better than the smell of books? I think to this day, still my favorite date is strolling a bookstore with my husband and a cup of coffee without the children, terrorizing it. Because <laughs> right now you can pray for my husband. He's running around with our four small children under eight. And uh, Natasha had asked me to mention their names. So um, it's, uh, our, my eldest is Victoria uh, and uh, a girl, thank goodness. And then we have twin boys. Byron Matthews, so that my husband Kent would get his BMW, finally. <laughs> That's the only one we'll probably ever get in ministry. <laughs> and, uh, and his um, brother, uh, William Stewart, uh, named for a grandfather and um, my husband's father. And uh, they're twins. They were born over midnight, so they have two different birthdays. We didn't see that one coming. Very fun. Tigger and Pooh, one crazy, one laid back. And then our littlest surprise baby that we had after we moved back here. We've been living in England and in the States where I've been teaching and whatnot for 15, 20 years. And we moved back a couple of years ago, initially at first to spend my sabbatical with my family, love on them at closer range, come back as Christians and see the world differently. When it's, it's really a wonderful thing and an uncanny thing in the Freudian sense to go back to a place with faith. Um, having a conversion later in your life is a wonderful gift um, and as I say, I think we're all Peter or Pauls on the range. But uh, my husband, who's a PK, a pastor's kid, and we all know pastor's kids, right? They have their own language. They speak Klingon, and they're their own people. He always sees grass as greener as, wow, you had this conversion. You see everything new, all the th stuff I grew up with and took for granted. You know how PKs always know where to find everything in the Bible? And whenever I'm looking in the Bible, I'm always like rustling the tissue paper, you know, ages after the passage is done and everything else. And... Um, and yet he sees what I'm able to see with new eyes. And so one of those decisions was to come back and live in my hometown and um, do ministry there and love on particularly my mainly unbelieving family. My sister had become a Christian uh, a few years before, but um, uh, no one else in my family. And we ended up having our surprise fourth baby, who we didn't think we could have, and we named him for my father. And if you do end up reading my memoir, or if you, just in yourselves, if you're all struggling with any, any relationship with anyone in terms of forgiveness... Um, and your own heart, uh, we ended up naming my son for my father. And my father actually ended up coming to the Lord uh, last year um, before he passed away. So it is a great circle of grace to be here among all of you, and a tremendous, tremendous privilege that God would put us in this family together, that we would be on the same adventure, that we would know the truth that does set you free and have the dignity of participating and giving it to others, not in a condescending way, but in the example of how we live our own lives through grace. Because one of the things that spoke to me when I finally went to Oxford, when I did take this scholarship that I should have been delighted over, but I was tremendously homesick and really, really depressed. <laughs> when I got there, I didn't want to leave my family. Um, I, I didn't want to be far away. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to travel back. But the scholarship was the most money I had ever seen. I was able to send some of it home. Yes, God does even use money, too. <laughs> Interesting terms like redeem. And, uh, but he also um, 
lift me out of a situation where I was not allowed to work. What an alien idea. <laughs> not allowed to do anything but study <laughs> when you're being paid for by a scholarship or the British Academy. They have this crazy idea in England that you should actually pay attention to your studies while you're doing it and not be distracted by a million other things. So all of a sudden, after years and years of going to my classes and, um, yeah, and going to work after class and working late and coming back and studying late and whatnot, I finally had this lifestyle in which I had time, time not only to do my tutorials and my classes and interact with uh, wonderful, amazing intellectuals, uh, but also to go to the pub, Every college has its own pub <laughs> to talk about things, to go on long walks. There was this contemplative um, life, which actually campuses originated from, that notion of going to a campus as a separate place, not in terms of um, an ivory tower that's removed, but a, a place in terms of giving you rest and space in order to, to digest ideas to help us in the larger world. And, uh, and Oxford really introduced that for me. As a result, I had, when I left, for Oxford, I remember feeling what Lewis later describes, because I hadn't read Lewis, at least in that sense. I'd read Narnia, but as an unbeliever, which is entirely different. Um, but uh, I had sunsucked in my heart, that longing that I think defines being human, that we all have, right? For something that we cannot put into words, for something that we know is bigger than us, that we are made for. And I have not ever met a person who doesn't have it, in some way, shape, or form. What Pascal says, that God-shaped void in all of us. And when I started studying there, I was, I was studying world religions for my, uh, my MPhil thesis at the time, so I was reading about lots of different religions and things, but I also uh, was intrigued by Christianity because um, I, finally was, I finally started reading the Bible. Uh, I had gone through 20 years of public education, never had to read the Bible, which I think is shocking as a literature major that we're not required to do so, even just basic information. But also I was amazed when I went to read it, and I went to read it as a trained reader, how much sense it actually made. <laughs> uh, how it, and also, how you just can't make this stuff up. I found it to be the best piece of creative nonfiction I'd ever read. Uh, so I was moved by that, but I was also increasingly introduced to more and more Christians. And, you know, we're all trying, and we're all sinners, and we all make mistakes. But what I began to discover about Christians was at least they were trying. Yes, in both, you know, both sides of the word. <laughs> Sometimes difficult. But at least trying. Just like want is a double-edged word, just like wisdom is double-edged, just like the sword in Revelation. When we want and desire something, and it's also what we lack. And the Lord speaks to us in our weaknesses and speaks to us in our strengths. And so when I arrived in Oxford homesick and yet desperately wanting to do my studies with this money finally to survive on and send back home, but also this time to read and think, Christians that were coming into my life that were blowing apart a stereotype I'd always had of Christians being sort of big-haired TV evangelists who take your money, uh, because we can assume that people know the gospel. But in mainstream North America, we don't. We can't look to the media for it. <laughs> but we often make this mistake, I think, as Christians, that Jesus is so obvious. And what's so radically amazing about Jesus is actually what Earl Palmer says. Jesus is the norm. Jesus is the norm. Not us. And sometimes we look at Christians and think they're so abnormal. <laughs> or they're so weird, or Jesus is so bizarre, but when we look at him as actually who we were supposed to be. And, um, and so as I was studying and reading the Bible and, and meeting more and more Christians, and I share in my memoir particularly um, Christians who spoke to me by their example. And uh, one of the uh, 
sections I wanted to share with you and read with you today was a section um, I'm hoping is timely for you because it was about my first Easter, having become a Christian and going to the home of a professor uh, who was uh, an older woman. She had um, raised her four children and stayed home raising them and was teaching part-time. Her husband was a very established historian uh, at an Oxford College there, and he had had a massive heart attack and passed away. And she took over his teaching. She was in the same area and whatnot. She took over his teaching and that to help out his students who were in the lurch and eventually became a beloved member of the college and assumed his teaching load and assumed mentoring his students and things. And when I came along, she was really a pillar in this college. She was also a Christian and a very savvy one. And when I became a Christian, she took me out for lunch to celebrate, but she also took me to church, which I thought was so alien <laughs> to go to church to celebrate something. <laughs> I had all these stereotypes, right? I was really, really cynical about fellowship, um, really cynical about uh, church, organized religion, that sort of thing. But I remember her one night take, um, when we were celebrating, and she poured me a glass of whiskey. You have to remember, Oxford is a place, too, where, sorry for any Baptists here, but you have... I had a sherry allowance in my scholarship. Because <laughs> you, you know, have a glass of sherry with your professor when you're studying, you're talking about your paper and your tutorial. Um, your paper looks a lot better if you've had a glass or two of sherry. <laughs> Probably when you're grading, too, but that's a different story. So, but I remember she put me this, and she said, let's drink to your health, your real health, your health in Christ, but also if you're going to be a Christian and an academic and a woman, you better drink up. <laughs> But she also said to me, when I asked her why she had, what, what, how she had done everything she had done, and she began to sort of start pushing all the piles of papers and things out of the way, and all of the books off of her desk. And at first I thought, oh my gosh, she can't handle her whiskey. <laughs> but then she said to me, all of these things don't matter. The book that you spend years and years and years of your life publishing, and then somebody sets a coffee cup on top of. The children that aren't pointed to Christ when you know how to point them there or pray that you can. The ways that we waste our lives when really any day we can pray is a good day. Having our identity first in Christ and everything else grows from there. And it hit me. It struck me. I was a new Christian after all of this wrangling and re reluctant conversion um, and issues with fathers and all sorts of things. And, uh, and it struck me. And she invites me to her house for my very first Easter, to her house out in the country. I want to share with you a wonderful quotation from Rainy Maria Rilke in Letters to a Young Poet. If you haven't read it, do. It takes one evening with a glass of sherry or tea. You are so young, so before all beginning. And I want to beg you as much as I can to be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart, and to try to love the questions themselves. Like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue, do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. The point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. See, I was one of those annoying people, and I still am, that asks a lot of questions. And I just assumed that our God could not stand up against them. But our God is not a fragile God, and our questions actually glorify him, and the way that he's wired us does so too. 
And it's okay to ask the questions. And if you're not a questioning soul, God bless you. <laughs> One of the most important witnesses to me was a young American man that was staying down the hall from me. I call him TDNH in my head in the story, Tall, Dark, and Handsome. He's now TBH, Tall, Bald, and Handsome. <laughs> I married him. But sorry, spoiler alert, too late. But again, he spoke to me. I was actually engaged to someone else at the time, but that was a this is such a scandal. So, an, an atheist, and it was all of So anyway, but what spoke to me about TDH's example, not even in a romantic way at the beginning, I know many of you are rolling your eyes, but I'm really serious, was that even as a pastor's kid, <laughs> he was accessible. He, was, he lived out his faith in a, in a gentle, humble way, and it spoke to me as does Regina, this professor's um, faith, spoke to me as well. And so I wanted to share with you a memory for me. As we enter the Lenten season, the season of slowing and lengthening and preparing for the entry of light, for all of you in your busy, manic lives with papers due and dorms rooms to pack up and lots of details and everything is so busy, busy, busy. We live such an opiate of busyness. but we know who to go to for rest. And I never understood that better. I got the living, I got the living water, I got the bread, I understood all, all the I am's, but wow, I did not understand the rest until after I had twins, but that's another book. But this is when she invited me out there. The train ride out of Oxford to Regina's crumbling, rambling farmhouse did not take long, but it felt as though we had entered an entirely different world by the time we arrived. Bumpy fields met our feet as soon as we descended from the platform. The air smelled honey-fresh and hummed with insects. Birds, life. There was no traffic, not even a traffic light. The tiny rural village seemed straight out of a George Eliot or Elizabeth Gaskell novel. A pretty place with a rector who might nod by the fire. Some of you are nodding now. I remember what it was like to sit there. Old maids in bonnets gossiping a suitor climbing the hill with a wildflower bouquet. I stayed in her late husband's study. He was also a very committed Christian. It had been his favorite room, a retreat, in this bustling, busy house of children and farm animals. Literally, the geese and ducks still wandered through the rustic kitchen that reminded me of those I had seen in Provence or Tuscany with lavender drying beside herbs and hanging baskets of fresh vegetables. Regina used to study, used the study now as a guest room, complete with a pull-out cot. She did not keep it as a morbid shrine to her husband's memory. Rather, she had it updated over the years, and she used his old mahogany desk for her own work now. Completely lined with books and overlooking the brightest part of the garden, the room was cheery and serious at the same time, much like Regina, I thought. Only the heavy velvet curtains looked dingy and old-fashioned, which surprised me when I considered how meticulous Regina was about aesthetic details. It was only when I went to close the curtains that I realized why they had not been replaced. At exactly the spot where you reached to pull them across the window, the fabric was worn in palm-sized patches. The curtains had grown almost threadbare in this spot from years of her husband pulling them open every morning, closed every night. Regina told me she liked this flaw in the otherwise renovated room. It reminds me of his ritual, she said. I ran my fingers down the curtains, 
feeling the richness of the velvet and then the want of it in the patches, God's reinstating of the old, tired, and frayed. Treasures only apparent when seen with new eyes. That Easter Eve, Regina brought me a simple but delicious meal, an omelet made with eggs fresh from her own chickens and a glass of mulberry wine made by her neighbor. And to this day, I have not eaten such a sumptuous dish. And I'm sure we can all think of a way that someone has served us in that way. Even maybe what your mom makes when you go home. I had not enjoyed mulberries since my sister and I stole them as children from the umbrella-like tree next door, and I now understood all too well Augustine's thievery of pears. Undisturbed by the pressures of college, I took a long, hot bath. Pure decadence for any student living in a dorm. And they took the bath alone with nobody pounding on the door. Now also decadent as a mother. In a massive pre-water-efficient tub, British tubs are so fantastic with the claws on them, and then slipped on the warmed pajamas Regina left out for me, wrapped around a hot water bottle tucked between my sheets. I decided to read a little before bed and scan the books along the wall, an overabundance of choice and painful to choose just one, but my eyes eventually fell on a beautifully bound copy with the gold letters of the author engraved along its spine. I opened up Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, remarking that it was one of the original editions of the earliest translations into English. That's just what kind of nerd I can be. And I shivered with delight at the find. Until I saw where I was in the story. Why have you come to disturb us? Jesus, who had come back to earth, stood on trial, and the Grand Inquisitor, a grisly old man who represented the church, flung his accusation, Why have you come to disturb us? I set Dostoevsky down, and I think the only way to set Dostoevsky down is with a thud. I needed to get some sleep, and Dostoevsky, contrary to the suggestion by the length of his novels was not a choice, conducive to relaxing me into sleep. Who else among these dear friends, who else might be a pleasant embrace before bed? Because books are friends, aren't they? And then I saw him also leafed in gold, Rilke, and I opened him hungrily. Even his name is like a silken ribbon through your fingers on your tongue. Perhaps everything terrible, Rilke writes, is in its deepest being something helpless that wants help from us. I looked up at the worn patches, so apparent now that the curtains were closed against the night. Fear lies at the unexamined core of who we are. Faith grows from the surpassing of fear, in spite of its presence. It is not a denial of fear, but rather a working from fear, so that faith, by its very process itself, acknowledges the fear, and in fact uses it to engulf the fear itself, transforming it into the most powerful rather than debilitating force there is. Love, which we know is tremendously fearsome. A soft knock at my door. It's late, I heard Regina call from outside. I saw your light on. Is there anything I can bring you? I opened the door and welcomed her in. A little light reading, she joked, nudging aside my gilded authors with her hip as she sat on the bed, patting me for me to sit next to her. Regina, I asked as I sat there, why is conversion so hard? Actually, it wasn't the hard part. <laughs> in retrospect, it's the post-conversion that is. Why? 
She pulled me close to her and I settled my head on her shoulder in this dear woman who smelled like her garden, honey and earth and lily of the valley, who smelled like my grandmother, swathed in butterflies. I will tell you what I told my own children when they faced the same questions, despite growing up in the faith, she said. Or maybe because of growing up in the faith, as they should. Grace is indeed a gift, but it doesn't give everything away. On the precipice of a question, there's nothing to lose and nothing to fear. When doubt gets turned inside out, all the fear pours out. It really is, as the saying goes, when you work from faith, either you will step forward onto something solid or you will be given wings. I feel as if I still, in spite of grace, fall so short, I said, leaning into her. Grace takes a lifetime to really grasp, Regina responded, and then some. In fact, most of us don't ever get it fully, I think. She stood up, taking the books and setting them back on the shelf. But even the crumbs from his table are enough. She talked about Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Carol, hopefully your time at Oxford will ignite a lifelong cultivation of self-discernment. And I pray this for all of you, too. Resulting in social service, whether it be to a single child or a nation full of people. Your education here has included your conversion, or put better, your conversion has marked the beginning of your real education. Your time here has not only honed your intellect, but hopefully it has contributed to the shaping of your spirit, so that as you now walk off your ledge of familiarity, you will also be able to walk with those you meet every day, ranging from their own issues to grave suffering and social injustice. It's like sharing your last crumb of bread when starving in a concentration camp. She looked at me keenly. People assume that our dignity only lies in our choices, in what we think we so powerfully will and wield, but it can reside in our reactions, too, and our decisions about how to respond. She walked over to me and opened the drawer of the bedside table, but here's what I recommend you read now to relax and get a good night's sleep, and she passed me a gossip magazine. I marveled that my hostess, such an established scholar and one of the only senior women at an Oxford college, had these lying around her home. Regina noticed the slight look of surprise on my face. Hey, she said, don't equate being in the world and not of it with sticking your head in the sand. I like knowing what Hollywood is up to. Isn't that just the American version of Mormonarchy anyway? At the very least, it always works in making me drowsy. She tucked me in, lowering the light. Good, a good night's sleep, Caro. You have been working so hard for so long, as all of you here are doing as well. And the real work is to believe in the one he has sent, but then to have our hearts open as to where he's put us and why to enact that work elsewhere. She kissed my forehead and said, rest now. Standing up and grinning, she added, now being the operative word, my young, and let's just say very loud grandchildren, will be here bright and early, and once they are, you'll know it. I thought we could all walk together through the meadow to Easter service. Sounds lovely, I smiled. Good, there'll be a light tea waiting for you if you'd like before we go, but if I don't see you, I won't wake you until it's almost time to leave. We'll plan on eating the big celebratory breakfast after service, and food always tastes better when someone else makes it for you, doesn't it? I love when Lewis says, but the Lord says, take and eat, <laughs> not take and think. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Just relax. Tomorrow will be your first Easter as a Christian. Caro. Every Easter is a new one for us. As is every morning. This is a time of celebration. I encourage you to soak it all in. And I say the same thing to all of you now. The service, the company, the food, the meaning, everything. Do it consciously and with care. Pause, rest, reflect. Don't underestimate the power and importance of celebration. It should be our perpetual way of life. We shouldn't be folks too rushed to say hello or too beaten to bless, but a people recalling joy. Regina's voice lowered and growing even more comforting in the dim room. Caro, for, Easter, for Christians, Easter is the ultimate reward of patience, of waiting for the resurrection and the fulfillment of the promise of everlasting life. Indeed, a sweetness to the soul. Thanks so much, Regina. You're right, I said from my cozy cocoon, wrapped in comforters against the late-night chill of an old farmhouse. I felt my chest loosen. Its usual tenseness had grown so familiar that the lack of it made me feel uncomfortable. That adrenaline addiction to overscheduling, over-demands, over-performance, over-everything felt normal. But we know what the real normal is. This is almost as good as getting to be home, I sighed. Caro, you are home, perfectly home. And you know it this time. Regina blew me a kiss and then closed the door gently behind her. I slept soundly that night, feeling rested and restored. I luxuriated in the downy bed, listening to the silver, tinkling sounds of children laughing in the garden and teacups rattling against saucers in the kitchen. The smell of just baked bread filled the air and the thought of fresh cream butter melting on a slice enticed me to get up. I put my hands in the worn patches of the heavy curtains and pulled them open. Unspeakably bright sunshine flooded the much-loved room, so tenderly prepared for me. My first Easter morning. There's a room like that for us perpetually, as John tells us. And I hurled all the cynical questions all of the doubt-filled questions had all the holes in my heart, and I stand before you as a witness to God's glory and grace. And sometimes things don't work out as to how we would pray for. Thank God. <laughs> um, one of the things that used to irk me if I was a Christian, and one of the questions I remember hurling at poor TDH, studying the church fathers, poor pastor kid, not knowing what was coming at him, it's cynical, me and my arrows lined up. And all the ways that we plant the seeds and we have nowhere, no idea how they're going to ripple out and who they're going to affect. Um, my family and community now affected by his parents' commitment and decision path and obedience to their Lord. But one of the questions I remember nailing um, TDH with was, the thief on the cross, you know, the crucifixion where you have the two thieves and the one hurls insults and the other one asks Jesus to remember him. And that story really, really, really ticked me off. I would actually use a harder word, but it's chapel. <laughs> that one bugged me. And I remember saying to TDH, that guy's sorry butt 
at the last minute is hanging on the cross. That's why he's asking for forgiveness. Who wouldn't pin like that? And, and Jesus allows them into paradise with him. He says, I, I will remember you today. I, you will be with paradise, in paradise with me today. And T.D.H. turns around and looks at me and just says, thank God. We are all that thief. At my father's funeral, after he'd become a Christian, the last thing my father gave me was a Bible. The last meeting I had with him, we were the kids, grandchildren were all climbing on him and hugging him and kissing him and everything. And he'd had years of being alienated and years of mental illness. And we, we had worked to reach out to him and to smother him with grandchildren are really good witnessing tools. But also my own heart before God needing to be softened. And we know in life that we don't always get what we pray for. And we don't know how things are going to go. But ultimately, it's icing on the cake. <clears throat> if something does go in a way on this side of heaven that we had hoped for in terms of reconciliation or whatnot, but regardless, it's our own hearts before God that need to be right, regardless of anything else that happens with anyone else. And I had that peace with my dad. And so it was just icing on the cake that he also had that peace and came to the Lord. And when he gave me this huge, gorgeous old Bible and he passed it to me and he said, I thought you might like the pictures. And that was the last time I'd seen, I saw him as he had a fall shortly afterwards and was unconscious after that in the ICU and then passed away. And when at the funeral home, they asked me to speak in the chapel, the name of the chapel was St. Dismas Chapel. St. Dismas is the thief of the right hand, the cross. I had no idea. I had sat at my father's right hand all through his demise in the ICU. We prayed and sang hymns and things with him. But St. Dismas is the name given to that thief, the thief who asks for forgiveness. And also, the last face that Jesus in agony would have seen himself, closer to him perhaps than even his own mother's and still a voice who affirms him in his own despair. God is good. We might not always understand or see. We might have to live out the questions. But isn't that part of the gift? And the dignity. Because a forced gift is no gift at all. Let me close with Gerald Manley Hopkins' beautiful poem, God's Grandeur, that I'm sure many of you know, but good words always bear repeating. And like Tolkien says, the oldest truths are the ones that lie too deep for frost, and we are done with frost. We are a people of resurrection. Let us be renewed as we slowly come into the light together. Hopkins writes, The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil, crushed. Why do men then not, now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod.
And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink, eastward springs. Because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah bright wings. Praise him.